is Sermon Smith, a bi-weekly conversation about the craft of sermon preparation, and my name is John Chandler. My guest today is David Guzik. David is a Calvary Chapel pastor. He's the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, and I comment on this, but I think this is the first time I've had a Calvary Chapel pastor on the podcast, which is actually really surprising to me, knowing how much that tradition uh, really celebrates the role of the sermon in their church. So uh, I was very thankful to have David. I know David is well-known in the Calvary Chapel Circle, but he's well-known outside of that as well because he's got uh, a pretty extensive commentary series that he's made available for free online through the Blue Letter Bible, but it's also available for purchase in, in print versions and even in Lagos. So you might be familiar with David as well thing that stands out to me talking to David in this interview is him commenting on, he. I mean, for him, study is just something that's for fun. He's doing it all the time, and sometimes it comes out in sermons. Uh, I, I just really admire and respect and appreciate that, that uh, that's just driving everything he's doing as part of his, as part of his uh, sermon rhythm and, and his sermon disciplines. So, David, thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, to everyone, uh, thank you for keeping those reviews coming in. Again, I'm trying to get up to 60 reviews on iTunes. No new ones to report this time around. So if you have a moment to drop in on iTunes and leave a review for the podcast, that would be appreciated. And also, if you can consider supporting the podcast on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Sermonsmith. And you can pledge just to support the podcast a dollar, three dollars, whatever amount you would like per episode. Uh, that would be greatly appreciated to help support the expenses and my time for the podcast. So here we are with David. So um, I'm just going to say this as part of the recording. I, you might be, uh, you might be the person who's been recommended most often, just because I know that you're, especially in Calvary Chapel circles, pretty well known, and some of your resources are appreciated. So even within an hour before we recorded. Somebody reached out to me and said, I should have David Guzik on the podcast. And here you are. Well, that's nice to hear, John. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, David, tell us, um, I, you know, the other thing I was thinking about this, I think you're the first, and this is surprising to me, because I've respected Calvary Chapel, especially preaching for a long time. I think you're my first Calvary Chapel guest. So, that being said, why don't you tell us about where you are, tell us about, you know, your particular setting there in Santa Barbara, but maybe talk about Calvary Chapel a little as well. Right. Well, I am pastor of the congregation of Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, which itself has been here in Santa Barbara for some 40 years. And like many Calvary Chapel churches, really born out of the Jesus movement in the mid-1970s. That, that was a remarkable time and one of the things that I think God really had his hand on in the Calvary Chapel movement was it was one of the church expressions of the Jesus movement that, that really thrived and, and developed deep roots. A, a lot of the Jesus movement was almost a little bit anti-church, or at least not comfortable with church. Uh, but I think one of the things, as I said, that God did with Calvary Chapel was give the Jesus movement a real place to do church. And of course, it wasn't the only expression of that across the country, but I think it was one of the um, most significant ones, and certainly one of the ones that's had the longest lasting impact. So I came to this congregation seven years ago. Uh, before that, I had pastored two previous Calvary chapels, and then also I was the director of a Calvary Chapel Bible College campus in Germany. Wow. And did you come up through Calvary Chapel? Was that your background? 
It it is. I was raised a nominal Roman Catholic, uh, and so Calvary Chapel was the first Protestant church that I ever walked into, and the first Protestant preacher that I ever heard walking into that church for the first time was a guy that some of your listeners may have heard of, uh, a man named Greg Laurie, who sure. has quite a, a work of evangelism around the country, and as well, pastors at Calvary Chapel in Riverside, Calvary, uh, California, known as Harvest Christian Fellowship. He's been there a long time. He has been there a long time. When I came there in the mid-1970s, he had already been there a few years. So you're talking about early 70s he came there. Yeah, because I know when I was in Orange County in late 80s, early 90s, he was there. And then, do I remember right, did he do, he came over to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa on Monday nights, I want to say. And there was a long time. stretch of time where yeah. Greg Laurie led a Monday night meeting there yeah. at Costa Mesa for many years. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. So talk about your particular church. Talk about how hard it is to live in Santa Barbara. <laughs> I've been through Santa Barbara a time or two, if you can tell. Yeah, um, Santa Barbara it is, as you're kind of referring to. It's yeah. a beautiful place. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some people call it the American Riviera. It kind of has a wonderful Mediterranean feel to it, beautiful coastline, uh, hills, uh, lots of great cultural things, wonderful restaurants, and uh, the wine industry is big out here, so people are all into that. Uh, it, it's a place that draws a lot of tourists all the time. You walk up down the streets of Santa Barbara, and it's wonderful to hear different languages being spoken all the time because of tourists that come here from all over mm -hmm. the world, as, as well as you would know. It's a big tourist destination just for people from Southern California. Uh, so it's a beautiful place to live, which also makes it an expensive place to live. Uh, that kind of has a way of squeezing out somewhat of the middle class here. Uh, there can be a combination of those who are rather well off and those who um, are just kind of getting started in things. The, one of the joke lines that goes about Santa Barbara, and I'm sure it's not the only place that people say this of, they say that it's for the newlyweds and the nearly deads um, because it can be a tough place to raise a family. Right. Yeah. Interesting. And that's just because the newlyweds can live in a small little place, but That's once right. they need an extra bedroom, they have to move. Yes. And the nearly deads have been there for a long time. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, but it is a great place. A lot of people who come to Santa Barbara for their education, either to Westmont College, which is here mm -hmm. in Santa Barbara, or University of California at Santa Barbara, they fall in love with the place and they find a way to live here. That's kind of a common story around here. And so what's the makeup of your congregation? Well, I think our congregation reflects our community pretty well. We are not a terribly racially diverse community. I I've lived a few other places in Southern California, so I kind of know from my own experience that Santa Barbara doesn't have the same uh, population density of African Americans. It doesn't have the same population density of Asians as other places. We do have a pretty substantial Latino community. And so our own congregation, I think, reflects that. Of course, we have some African-Americans and some Asians uh, attending our church, but it's dominantly uh, white, and then you would call it Latino, uh, either first or second generation. Right. Okay. Um, and talk about, and this this one I think will be unique from a lot of the other tra traditions and backgrounds of people I've talked to. Maybe not unique, but it'll, it'll definitely have its own spin on it. You know, I like to ask the question, what is the role of preaching in the life of your congregation? So talk about that for you. 
Well, this is one of the things that's sort of characteristic of our Calvary Chapel family and kind of the, the philosophy of ministry that we share together. Preaching has in a very important uh, place in our congregational life. We kind of come from that uh, very classical, low church kind of mentality where there's not a great deal of emphasis on liturgy or ceremony, but really uh, the preaching is kind of the central act of people feeding on God's word, the, the, the shepherd of the congregation bringing the food for the sheep, so to speak. And especially in our church tradition, with an emphasis on expositional preaching. Um, mm-hmm. Topical preaching certainly exists in the Calvary Chapel world. It's certainly not forbidden, but very much as a strong philosophy of ministry, the idea of expositional teaching through books of the Bible is a very high priority. And it um, it really is a, is a central aspect of kind of how we think of ourselves in the Calvary Chapel world and uh, what we try to carry out in practice. Yeah, I mean, so... I, that was new to me that you even said topical is not forbidden and it occurs some because I feel like all of the Calvary Chapel exposure I've had, which I, granted isn't a lot, you know, I've visited a few a few times and listened to some podcasts, but it's almost always been really working through verse by verse. Don't skip any parts, you know, really dig down through that passage verse by verse. Is that, would you say that's, even when you say expositional, is that typically how it's done? It's, we'll start at, chapter one, verse one, and we're going to just go through this book of the Bible until we're done with it, then we'll move on to the next one? Yes, very much so. And and to people from some other, you know, church traditions, I, it would seem very much almost like an adult Sunday school class or, or a Bible lecture, because it is. It's working through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And as I kind of look at our whole Calvary Chapel family, I, I mean, to be honest, just like with anything, when it comes to biblical exposition, some guys do it better than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know that there's a lot of guys who um, they they kind of think they're expositing the scripture, but really they're just reading a few verses and then kind of giving opinions about things. Um, so there's a variety of um, of expressions on how well it's done in our movement, but that's definitely the ethic that that should be what the um, the congregational life and uh, the worship service should be built upon. Yeah. It, it really comes from Chuck Smith, the guy who pastored the the first Calvary Chapel, so to speak, uh, in Costa Mesa. He had a very pivotal experience in his career before starting Calvary Chapel, where he sort of exhausted a repertoire of sermons while he was pastoring a denominational church in Huntington Beach. But he didn't want to leave Huntington Beach. He loved to surf. He loved the schools. His family got along well there. But, you know, he basically had a, uh, a stable of about 100 sermons that he could preach. And when that was used up after two years, what do you do? And he came upon um, some information, especially from a Haley's Bible handbook. You remember that mm-hmm. old yeah, small sure. book? Well, there's a section in there where Haley speaks about the importance of teaching verse by verse through books of the Bible. And it caught Chuck Smith's attention. And he said, man, I I could do this and stay here a lot longer. (laughs) And and he really saw the great work that God did in the congregation as he began to teach through books of the Bible this way. And a lot of that has just really been passed on. You could say that it's sort of written in the Calvary Chapel DNA, that that is a very important foundation for our philosophy ministry. And would you would you say that there's any nuance? You know, we I say even the role of preaching at the beginning of this, but... 
would you say there's any nuanced difference between what might happen in a Bible study where you're going verse by verse, you know, other than presentation style, you know, because you're going to adapt for a different audience. But is there any nuance or difference for what you're trying to accomplish between a Sunday school class or Bible study versus what you want to try to do on a Sunday morning from the pulpit? Or is it, would you call both of those just teaching and that's the format that, that, Calvary Chapel does. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, allowing for the differences in environment and perhaps audience that you mentioned, it, it really is the same idea. Mm-hmm. Um, Ch- Chuck Smith really passed on to us a philosophy ministry that said that the purpose of church meetings is not primarily to evangelize. Uh, of course, that shouldn't be prohibited. And, and, and just as Paul wrote to Timothy, that the pastor should do the work of an evangelist. But the primary function, the primary idea of the Sunday gathering should be for the equipping of the saints to bring God's people into maturity and to build a strong, healthy church with the idea that healthy sheep will naturally reproduce um, instead of making the focus of Sunday, especially Sunday morning, uh, evangelistic in nature. It would be to really teach God's people. Yeah. And then so as our... And maybe even this has to do with different places that you've been. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm really getting into some philosophical stuff with you. This is fun already. Uh, <laughs> but in different places you've been or in uh, the 30 years that you've been, I'm reading this off your bio, in the 30 years that you've been um, in Christian service or preaching, do you find that even as you're doing verse by verse, the uh, the way that you have to approach it has changed in based on like what level of biblical literacy the people have, or do you just assume there's a pretty low level of biblical literacy everywhere you've been and just try to really? Well, for for me personally, it has changed because now I assume a much lower level of biblical literacy. Sure. I think that previously in, in my preaching, maybe 10, 15 years ago, I kind of operated under the assumption that people would get biblical references when I just made them or concepts without explanation. But in my own preaching, I'm very much trying to not um, eliminate theological words or biblical uh, you know, connections from my message, but knowing that I have to explain them and explain them to people who would have no familiarity, no background with the biblical text. Yeah. It's it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting thing I think about often, especially you know where I am in Austin, where a lot of people have church baggage, maybe even more than church background, right? And so I see opportunities all the time to, and, and have to make choices all the time to: Am I going to take this church language and try to give them something in place of it because it's got too much attached to it, or am I going to help them relearn and reimagine and maybe even redefine? you know, this church language, to, because, you know, a church is a culture and culture progresses through language. So it's a, it's an interesting thing to try to work through that as our congregations are changing. Well, that's a fascinating question. I mean, I think about it, uh, you know, kind of for example, with the use of the word salvation. Yeah. Uh, that, that It's a great word. It's a biblical word. What an amazing history and, and nuance that word has. But um, I find myself substituting the word rescue. Uh, for salvation, because I mean, in, it, it certainly carries with it the biblical idea, but I, I think it has a greater relevance to maybe people who just aren't familiar with the biblical text. Yeah. And salvation is a, that's surely a loaded term. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's such a church term 
that, you know, people don't have a, a, a appreciation for all that it means outside of that as well. Well, let's talk about uh, how you how you plan out your series. You know, it looks like I'm I'm looking and it looks like you're in the Daniel right now. And That's you've right. done Jude's Song of Solomon. So, so do you go back and forth between Old Testament and New, New Testament? And how far out do you project all that? Not strictly going back and forth between Old Testament and New Testament. Basically, kind of with the idea that our congregations deserve something, uh, you know, what we would call kind of the whole counsel of God. We kind of look to teach books that just haven't been taught in a while. And so one of the grids by which we examine whether or not we should embark on this series through the book of Daniel, uh, we looked, well, when's the last time we taught Daniel? We saw well, it had been quite a long time. And so other things just having to do with where the congregation was at and just kind of a general theme of, of what this might speak to our congregation. For example, the series we did previous to Daniel on Sunday mornings was a series through the Sermon on the Mount. And a lot of that was when our recent presidential election was really hot and heavy. Mm-hmm. And, and I really wanted to take time out and, and examine in some depth, I think, something that's such a, a glorious manifesto of the kingdom of God. Uh, at a time when we're so focused on the kingdom of man, uh, let's not forget the kingdom of God and how it speaks to us. And so, you know, some of those practical considerations go in, and then there's also a sense of spiritual consideration. God, what, what would you speak to our congregation in this season at this time. And so when you, when you're like, how far out are you planned right now? Well, we're planned right now to the end of this Daniel series. And Mm -hmm. so we don't have a clear idea what we're going to do come July. And so that's pretty soon. Sure. Uh, I kind of respect guys who plotted out a year, two years in advance. Um, uh, guys who take their sermon order from the lectionary, sometimes I've looked at that with some envy and you go, wow, I mean, that's just all right there. It's <laughs> yeah, pretty yeah. simple. But um, it doesn't feel stressful. It feels very comfortable kind of doing it the way we do it. And I would suppose in coming weeks, we kind of get a little serious and think, okay, let's uh, seek God and uh, use both a, a spiritual grid and then just a sort of a practical analytical grid and see if we can't decide where we'll go next. So you've got Daniel lined up. Uh, so I, I don't know. I don't know when this one will publish, but we're so you're, you've got about two more months in Daniel based on where we sit right now. Yes. And do you have those mapped out down to, you know, what Sundays you're going to cover what verses or is that just each yes. week you feel like oh, I'm going to go until I feel like I've got a complete sermon here? No, we've got it mapped out. And this kind of brings up one of the great challenges, I think, in teaching through any book of the Bible. Mm-hmm. You've got to predetermine what kind of pace you're going to go through. Yeah. yeah. Are you going to do it more as an overview and take larger sections? Or are you going to really just take your time and go on a more in-depth level? We generally take more of an overview approach. Uh, we'll take Larger chapters, and especially in the second half of Daniel, when so much of it deals with the prophetic mm-hmm. and those kind of understandings, um, I, I think you got to decide either I'm going to drill down very deeply and maybe spend a year going through the second half of Daniel, or I, I'm going to do it more as an overview and spend, as we are, about two months going over the uh, the second half of Daniel. And we've decided just with where our congregation's at and and what would be best for the spiritual growth and health of our congregation, we're going to take more of the overview. But you don't necessarily do that with every text. No. I take it. Yeah. No. 
No, there, there's. I, I believe there's really a place for both. There's a because your sermon on the mountain series does not look like an overview. No, no. <laughs> Although you know what, there's so much there that at there times is. it felt like it. But yeah. no, uh, we took a long time to go through just those three chapters. So yeah, I, I don't think that there's an absolute right or wrong. Hopefully, there's some sense of a leading of the Holy Spirit in those things. Uh, how often do you preach in your congregation? Did I lose you there? Did I lose you there? Yeah, I, I, maybe just for a moment. Okay, yeah, now you're back. Okay, I, yeah, I, I asked, okay. how, uh, how often how do you preach? Often do you preach? Oh, okay, yeah, I didn't hear that question. Uh, in the last couple years, I've adopted a, um, a approach to the pulpit where I'm in the pulpit two-thirds of the time mm-hmm. and other people preach uh, one-third of the time. Uh, it, I used to preach more than that. But I, I do have um, obligations and ministry opportunities out of the church, especially kind of internationally. And so that kind of prohibits me from being in the pulpit every week. And I just kind of settled into this rhythm of doing two-thirds and one-third. Yeah. And I, I asked that just because you know, you've said you've listened to the podcast before. So, you know, I'm going to ask yes, just, you know, about your just about your weekly rhythm. Weekly you know, rhythm. talk about course, what it looks like for you to put a sermon like together. A sermon together. Yeah, well, to me, you know, sermon prep and digging down deep into the scriptures for myself, I mean, it, it's it's really my chief joy. Yeah. I'm glad I don't have to make the choice, but if I had to choose between only studying and only preaching, I'd probably pick only studying. <laughs> uh, it, it's It's a place where it's just so rich and nourishing for myself in my own relationship with God. Uh, but of course, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to make that choice because right. preaching right. Is, is a great delight to me. So my, my process begins early in the week where I just spend a lot of time reading and meditating upon the text. And fortunately, I've been doing this long enough now where um, I, I have a general familiarity with most sections of the Bible. I can kind of make connections and, and have an understanding of the major themes of, of particular parts. But I, I kind of think through it again and work through it again. But my serious preparation begins on Thursday, where I'll try to give several hours to it. And then it culminates on Friday, where I devote as much of the day as I possibly need to finishing the message. I always have the goal to finish the message uh, before midnight on Friday. And sometimes I'm working very late on it. But it's nice for me personally to have Saturday as a, as a genuine off day, knowing that I'm prepared for Sunday. Yeah, and you, I mean, yeah, you just I mean, you feel like from what you finish like off, what with you finish Friday, off with on Friday, you get up Sunday and you're ready to go. Yeah, of course, I look over it again Sunday before um, you know I leave the house, and then maybe again once I'm at the church. But yeah, I, I am uh, earlier in my preaching life, my ministry life, uh, I would rehearse the um, the sermon. Mm-hmm. Uh, years ago, there were many Sundays where I would go and preach the sermon to an empty uh, sanctuary on Saturday. Yeah. And it really helped me. Um, it really helped me to do that. But at, at this point, uh, it doesn't really seem to be necessary, though sometimes for some special messages, I'll feel a need to do that. And I won't hesitate if I feel the need. Yeah. yeah. Well, talk about then, we'll talk about then what that what that, what that time looks like on Thursday. Thursday. I'm getting my own voice echoing own back voice to me. Back. You're not hearing that though, are you? I am not hearing it. Good. Okay. It's distracting me, but hopefully it won't distract anybody else. <laughs> so talk about what happens on Thursday 
Thursday. Uh, what you do with those few hours that you hope to have done by Friday, and then talk about what happens on Friday. Well, what I do, uh, like I would suppose most of your listeners do, I mean, I, I start with the text itself. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I love Bible commentaries and, you know, whatever Greek or Hebrew tools, although I'm not proficient in Greek and Hebrew myself. But, you know, I, I readily know how to use and, and reference those resources. But what I'll begin with is just a close examination of the Bible in English. Um, I, I normally teach from the New King James translation, but of course, I'll, I'll look at other translations as well. And what I do is I try to take the text and break it down and outline it for myself uh, in just a very ordered, linear these verses, phrase by phrase, line by line, this is the sense, these are the biblical connections. And, and I spend uh, just a lot of time developing and outlining the text for myself. That, that's really the beginning part. And, and in some ways, the most, um, I, I extend the most energy kind of mentally and spiritually in that extended phase of, of preparation dealing with the text directly. And how often is when you get to that, do you feel like, Oh man, we didn't do this planning breakdown properly. And I wish this was going to cut short three verses or go three verses longer. Well, you know what? Uh, That is the case from time to time, just (laughs) in the last couple of weeks I I made. So, and so I'm never hesitant to make adjustments on the fly uh, with that and to, to alter, you know, like you say, to add a few verses or change a few verses or, Take something that I really thought was going to be one message and split it into two. Uh, if I feel like that's the important thing to do, uh, it, it's rare that I really feel bound by the schedule. Occasionally that'll happen if there's a significant, you know, you, I want to have this preaching series done before Christmas or something like that. Then you might feel a little more constrained, but not normally so. And you said you want to go to as late as you need to on Friday till you're done. So how do you know when it's done? You know when it's done. You know, it's done when I have a set of notes. Uh, and for me, the way I prepare my notes, it's going to be basically four or five pages that I've thought through. I've kind of uh, mentally spoken through that, that from my frame of reference and my experience, I go, I, I'm ready to preach this. And it stirred my own heart and my own mind. And I think God has something to speak to the congregation through this. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then talk, talk about, how, you talked about exposition earlier, but how do you determine, like my impression from when I've listened to Calvary Chapel preachers or seen Calvary Chapel preachers is there's not even, and I don't mean this as a critique, right? But the thing they, the thing they always say is come up with your one thesis statement that you're going to build your essay or your sermon, but it feels like the, uh, Expositional that I see verse by verse from some Calvary Chapel preachers, there's not necessarily this primary theme that I want to bring out. I just want to work through this passage verse by verse, you know, and unfold what's happening here. Is that a, is that a fair assumption or is there usually some underlying theme that you come up with? No, John, I think that's a valid um, uh, observation. And, and I think in some times and places, that's a critique, uh, a good critique of Calvary Chapel preaching. Uh, oftentimes we're missing a larger theme. And it's easy when you're teaching verse by verse through a section of the Bible to really neglect 
that text's place in the larger scope of the book and the Bible and really see it's getting across a major theme and idea. Or there are some sections, for example, you know this from Paul's writings. Uh, some of the Apostle Paul's writings, he's, he's this theme and then that theme, and sometimes he'll bounce from theme to theme. But it's important to let the broader theme of the passage really come through in your preaching. Sometimes we as preachers fall into the trap of treating each verse as it's from the book of Proverbs, as it's each verse has its own wisdom or idea yeah. or yeah. truth without really grabbing onto the overall theme of where things are going. And so that, that that's something that, I mean, I, I try to encourage uh, preachers in our own Calvary Chapel tradition, look, be mindful of the broader themes, emphasize that. If, if you're teaching, you know, the first half of Daniel 6, don't look only for the interesting ideas in the individual verses. You need to be able to present a coherent idea of what the of what the text as a whole is saying. And, and I think part of the reason I, I even asked that, that question is what is that what does is that, that pull that you towards a particular, towards particular application? application? Do you bring application out as you go? Like this verse like might look in your life like this, or how does application how does work when you do that expositional that way? Well, I, I mean, I think you look for the application where it would just logically make pastoral sense from the text. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so you're making application both on a personal level, but then, of course, you're, you're always anxious to find uh, where Jesus is present in the text and apply it in a way that, that would draw the attention of the congregation to the person and work of Jesus. And so I, I look for application on both of those levels, on a, on a personal level, of course, uh, you know, for example, this last Sunday, I taught on the second half of Daniel chapter six, where Daniel's in the lion's den and comes out unscathed. And of course, it is a, a beautiful example of Daniel's faith, as it was praised later in the book of Hebrews. He's, he's praised as one of the heroes of the faith who stopped the mouths of lions and his consistency of prayer and his good testimony. And, and all of that is wonderful and a great example for Christians. There's plenty of application there. But then we also have the application of seeing this wonderful idea of, of God's man of impeccable character um, accused by uh, his jealous, you know, uh, peers uh, put into a place, a stone room left for death, stone rolled over the opening. And in the morning, he emerges alive and victorious. I mean, it, it's also wonderful to see how just that clearly points to the person and work of Jesus. Yeah. Well, let, um, well let, um, I usually like to ask about resources, like about resources, but I'm going to ask you about ask your you resources because <laughs> I'm sitting here <laughs> in front of me. I have your online, your online commentary, Enduring Word. Enduring Word. Right. Is that complete? Is that complete? Well, uh, God willing, this year, I'll have something on every book, every chapter of the Bible. And how uh, right is that? Now, I have. That? Uh, wow. Go ahead. How is that? Go ahead. Well, uh, right now I have remaining about 14 chapters in Ezekiel and about 29 chapters of Proverbs. And when those are completed, I'll have something on the whole Bible. I, I, I dare not say that I'll be finished because sure. like this is my life's work and it'll never be finished. But it'll be a very important milestone for me to have completed something on every part of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to say you're finished. I mean, Carl Bart didn't oh, he write his right. Romans commentary three times? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, we're never finished. Yeah. 
Well, how did, how has that well, come how did, about? How has that come about? Well, it, it's actually a very unusual kind of circumstance. Um, I was an early adopter of um, computer technology. Yeah. Uh, in yeah. the mid 1980s, I was using one of these huge uh, ancient computers, and uh, when things went over to MS DOS and then later Windows. I mean, I was using a computer way back then. So uh, by the late 90s, I had already been using a computer to prepare my teaching notes for at least 10 years. Yeah, I, I was at a pastor's conference in, I think it was 1996. And a guy got up and he said, um, hey, we're making an internet Bible resource called the Blue Letter Bible. Huh. If you guys have teaching notes in computer format on a floppy disk and you want to send them up for our consideration to put on the commentary, go right ahead. And so I looked at the room. There's about 300 pastors in the room. And I figured, well, maybe about 10% of these guys have that material. And maybe uh, half of those guys will send it up to them. That's about 15 guys. I said, oh, I've, I've got it. I'll be one of the 15 guys. So sometime after getting home from the conference, I packaged up, I don't know, five or six floppy disks and mailed them up to the place where they uh, said. And some months later, uh, somebody said, hey, David, did you see your commentary on the Blue Letter Bible? And I was I was surprised. And I went online. Those days, it was the old dial-up modem, of course. Wow, yeah. yeah. I went online, and I saw my commentary on there. And I'll tell you, John, I was absolutely horrified, just mortified. (laughs) Because here it was, you know, the Book of Genesis commentary, uh, Matthew Henry... Um, John Calvin, Chuck Smith, and David Guzik. And I, 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 was, I was absolutely mortified. I thought I would be one of a dozen guys who submitted their notes, you know, and I felt like this is going to show the world how uh, lame my material is. People will wonder, who does this guy think he is? And I, I really struggled with the idea of just saying, take the notes down. That's not how I thought it was going to be, but I, I, I didn't. And what I found out through that was what I prepared for myself as teaching notes was helpful for other people as Bible commentary. Uh, and I don't know how else I would have ever found that out. I mean, how do you know? And so that is more than 20 years ago now, and uh, I've developed and worked and added to and so now I'm, I'm coming up to the point of having something on almost every book of the Bible. Yeah. yeah. And just making yeah. them available for free. Available for free. Yeah, that, that's how it was from the beginning. And I know that's not terribly a great marketing uh, approach. <laughs> but you know what? Look, I, I'm, I'm very realistic about this. I know that I reach a lot more people by making them available for free than I would if I put it behind a paywall or something like that. And sure. it seems to me like that's the bigger priority. And I, I got to say, it's a very unexpected thing, but a very uh, pleasant thing to, to realize that uh, there's people out there that find those Bible resources helpful. And these are just as you've been working through books of the Bible and your sermons through the years, you just tie all your notes together and post them. Yes, but well, not exactly, kind of. Um, At the same time, there's been several books of the Bible that I haven't taught through in a congregational way that I have prepared through them as if I would teach. For example, right now, uh, I'm working on the book of Ezekiel, and I'm not preaching the book of Ezekiel, but in my side time, in my spare time, 
as much time as I can possibly give, I'm preparing those notes as if I were to teach you the book of Ezekiel. And I post them online. Just just this morning, I posted the notes from Ezekiel chapter 34. And uh, wow, what an amazing chapter. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, um, so some of it, yes, is directly connected to preaching work. But there's a, a fair proportion of it that I've done just as if I was going to preach through the book. Right, right. And what is that? What's what is that, that process look like of putting those, like together? putting those together? Just, I mean, is that pretty much exegetical work and commentary? It's, it's pretty much exegetical work. Again, I spend a lot of time with the text itself, yeah. Uh, yeah. reading it, meditating on it, looking at different translations. And then I go through and I do just sort of a very methodical kind of linear, I'm a very linear kind of thinker, uh, outlining through it piece by piece. Uh, and then when I'm all done with my own kind of outline and analysis of the text, uh, then I go to a stable of commentators. For example, right now on Ezekiel, I think I'm using about 14 or 15 commentators. And I just go through them and the commentaries are very helpful. Uh, sometimes to bring up aspects of the text or connections that I was never aware of, and that's, of course, helpful. Uh, sometimes to confirm things that I already saw, may- maybe give expression to them in better words than I could come up with. Uh, or sometimes to give me things that I, well, this guy posits this about the text, but I don't think he adequately makes his case. So I think I'll stick with, with where I started. So uh, I, I spent a lot of time with a variety of commentators. And you said, you know, you were an early on adopter of computers, sending off, I assume, three and a half inch floppy disks, not five and a quarter. (laughs) Well, when I when I started uh, preparing my stuff on computer, I was using the five and a quarter. But by the time 1996, I was using the three and a half. Uh, But are you a Bible software guy now or do you have a giant wall of books? Uh, I have both. And I find myself increasingly using Bible software because... Of my travel schedule, I like to be able to continue my study and preparation uh, while I'm traveling. So I'll convert things. To, I'll either purchase things in digital format or sometimes if, if a book I really like isn't available, I'll scan it uh, so I wow. have it digitally wow. uh, just so that it's, it's completely portable. Uh, yeah. I do like using yeah. print books. I've got a, a library that suits me pretty well. But increasingly, I'm using digital um, uh, versions. So when you scan a book, scan a book how do you, how do you how go do about you scanning go it and how do you store it? What format? Well, uh, for example, in my Ezekiel study, Charles Feinberg has a pretty good uh, commentary on Ezekiel that I couldn't find anywhere uh, in digital format. So what I did was I bought an extra copy of it. I mm-hmm. cut the spine, uh, individual pages, and then I just used a scanner, you know, one of those copier scanner kind of things, to scan each individual page in PDF format. And then in Acrobat, I use a, a character recognition pass-through. Yeah. Yeah. So what I end up with is a PDF uh, that's uh, where the, the text can be copied and pasted. And I just use it on my uh, browser in the, yeah. uh, in my computer. Yeah. Okay. And it, okay. so when you, and when it, you talk about cutting off the spine and scanning it, like one page at a time? No, the, the, the particular scanner I use has a uh, very convenient, has an auto feeder and it has right. an auto feeder right. that can deal with pages that have text on both sides. Yeah. Like a scan so, snap. Yeah, like it's a pretty simple. Exactly. So I yeah. just put it in there and, and it does it. 
Great. Okay. Yeah, you just you yeah, pique my interest there because I don't think anybody's there, ever said that. Ever but I, that. I I like but to digitize like things to digitize too. Things too. Yeah, I tell you, it's a great way to do it. And and for those rare resources that you really like, you want to use, but they're not available already as a module on Logos or some other Bible study software, uh, then it's a convenient way to do things. So one of the question I want to stray with and you a little bit is. From my outside perspective, perspective, it seems like Calvary Chapel has a high value in really doing some grassroots training of Bible teachers. You know, it's not necessarily send them off to Bible college or not necessarily send them off to, you know, the $50,000 a year seminary or whatever. But it seems like Calvary Chapel really tries to take people up even through the church. So can you talk a little bit about, is that something you've done? Is that something you can talk about? Yes. You know, in kind of the Calvary Chapel world, we do have Bible colleges. And sure. for seven years, I did lead uh, a Bible college campus in Germany that we had. And that's good and rewarding work. But exactly as you say, there is a high value on training and raising up qualified teachers uh, just on a congregational level. And so a lot of that goes into learning just from the particular pastor on an apprentice kind of basis. Here, let me show you exactly what I do and how I do it, and you can learn from that. But then also on recommending resources, and especially now, of course, there's online resources for training yeah. Uh, yeah. In, uh, in preaching, in hermeneutics, in biblical analysis, like there never was 20 years ago. So uh, I, pastors I know are making wise use of those things to train up new preachers and teachers. And it's it's really just a really you, walk day, you walk alongside me while I plan this, and then maybe after, maybe after six months we'll give you a shot. Yeah, and as with anything, you know, you give somebody a shot, you know, uh, in a, a home Bible study, a community group, and then maybe uh, you know at some other forum, uh, a men's Bible study, something like that, or if it's a woman, a woman's Bible study, that kind of thing. Uh, and then eventually, it's it's kind of rare. Uh, not absolutely unheard of, but it's pretty rare. You throw somebody on a regular midweek or Sunday morning service who has no experience. But of course, there does come the place where a person progresses in their ability to both prepare and deliver uh, sermons, that the next step is for them just to get repetition in uh, a setting that'll challenge them in that way. And how do you identify, do you potential, identify potential teachers? Teachers. Well, I mean, of course, there's the grid you go through, first of all, to see just if they have the gift, the enabling to understand and bring forth the message of a text. Uh, I, I think um, anybody who really has the gift of preaching, God kind of gives a concurrent gift of studying and, and gift of biblical understanding. Of course, it's not in any perfect sense. We all can and do make mistakes and, and have error from time to time. But I mean, in, in the main point, when they preach, you can say, yes, th- this is a, a good exposition. They, they understand the Bible and they know how to communicate it. So there's that sort of aspect on it. But then there's the other one, just the ability, at least there's some, at least maybe even just in a seed form, the ability to communicate what the biblical text says. So there's, there's both, you see that they are capable of adequate preparation in their analysis of the text but then also adequate presentation uh, to be able to bring it forth in a way that will both capture the attention of the people that they speak to and really bring some encouragement, admonition, 
uh, instruction, application, whatever would be merited by that text. Yeah. Well, let's talk. Um, let's talk resources. You know, I let you talk about. I let you. <laughs> I asked you to invite you to talk about your your commentary. <laughs> yeah, and I'd be happy for any of your listeners to check out the resources. You're not embarrassed work. by them anymore. <laughs> no, I'm not. Yeah, you know what? That that was a lot. I got over it. It's it. it uh, so now I'm just happy. But but you know, my 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 resources are also available. For example, as a as a module on Logos that can be purchased. I mean, look, it's you got to pay money for that. It's it's free on EnduringWord.com. By the way, my resources are also available on uh, Blue Letter Bible. They're still, still there. Available. Yeah. Yes, they're yeah. still there. But um, sure, they're available for free on my website. But, you know, some people like the convenience of having to be a module on Logos. So it, it, it can be purchased for that as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, but where uh, I was going with all that ultimately, that ultimately is, uh, what are some other resources some that other you find helpful find that helpful shaping you as a preacher or especially or you love studies study so much? Study. Like what are some of your favorite maybe yes. commentaries or other study resources? Well, I, I kind of, um, I'm kind of biased towards older commentators. I, yeah. I probably don't yeah. work as much as I should to keep my finger on the pulse of, of newer commentators. And when I say older, sometimes I mean just a, a generation ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, guys like um, uh, James Montgomery Boyce, um, uh, Derek Kidner, man, he's a favorite commentator of mine. Yeah. He, he does some yeah. excellent work on the Old Testament. Uh, Leon Morris, I kind of regard as a giant of biblical commentators. Um, so these are kind of guys in a more modern context, but... I also get a lot from the, the G. Campbell Morgans and the F.B. Myers. There's kind of a stable of old Puritan guys I use, Matthew Poole and John Trapp. Um, Adam Clark, that Methodist guy from the late 18th and early 19th century, he was great. Uh, and then I, I read a lot of Spurgeon. Uh, it's my habit to whatever text I'm teaching on or studying through, I'll see whatever Spurgeon has preached on that, and uh, I'll look through those sermons and, and see what I can gain from them. Uh, how, uh, how? So a friend of mine, so a friend of mine read a book on preaching by Spurgeon, and I interviewed and him I interviewed a few him. months ago as if ago, I was interviewing Spurgeon based on that Spurgeon book. But I'm curious, I'm curious, from reading Spurgeon's from reading sermons, Spurgeon's how much do you feel like you could just take like one of those and preach it in Santa Barbara right now? Well, I don't think I could. I mean, you know, you could talk about maybe an abridged version, you know, his me thinks and his wherefores and things like that, his his manner, the the manner of speaking. But in the essential point, I mean, there are certainly some Spurgeon sermons that would definitely do that. Although uh, a modern audience would find the message of Spurgeon so densely packed with biblical information and illusion that it would probably be mostly beneficial to a biblically literate population, uh, not so much to people who know nothing of the Bible. Spurgeon's sermons were so filled with allusions to different areas of Scripture uh, that were commonplace in his day because it was just kind of an environment where people had a greater sense of biblical literacy from the culture at large. I think it would be a little bit difficult to translate, but... yeah. I certainly do. I, I give my people a lot of Spurgeon quotes. Um, I, I won't say that I quote from Spurgeon in every sermon, but you know, maybe uh, maybe half. Uh, there's some idea because he has a way of putting things in such a pithy and um, and memorable way that I like to take advantage of that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, 
Well, talk about, I mean, we talked about your website, Enduring Word. You also have, alongside your church podcast, you also have the Enduring Word. I assume that's just some of your sermons on that podcast? That's right. That's right. It's just collected sermons of mine on the podcast. And uh, also on the, the website that I have, you know, I have a library of audio and video resources from, I don't know, the last, at least going back 20 years, I would say, uh, of my preaching and teaching. So, And so be, and beyond your website, beyond what, your about website what about Twitter, your church's Twitter, website, your church's in case somebody wants to learn more about, what you're, up to. about what you're up to? Sure. Uh, they can follow me on Twitter. It's just David Guzik. My name is how they'd find it. The church, Calvary SB for Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. That's easily found on Twitter. I do have an Instagram account and, uh, of course, a Facebook account as well. I don't keep up with social media as well as I should. I'm trying to do that a little bit better. I think it's a good way just to keep people informed of resources that I have or quotes I run across or things that I think are valuable or some kind of benefit to people. Um, yeah. But, yeah, those things yeah. are definitely out there. All right. Well, David, thank you so much. David, you this so was much. a long time David coming, long but, we time happen, but we made it happen. It was, John. I, I appreciate it. Thanks for your time and your patience in uh, arranging a time when we could get together. Yeah, no problem. I'm glad we did. Thanks, everyone, for listening. As always, uh, you can please spread the word about the podcast, retweets, share the tweets, uh, Facebook, however you like, at uh, twitter.com slash sermonsmith or Facebook, search for sermonsmith.com, all one word, sermonsmith wasn't available for me. And thanks, as always, for listening.